Good morning, Harvest Church. Harvest Community Church. These masks, they're getting me. Well, good morning. I'm Matthew Cunningham, and uh, I'm delighted to be here this morning to deliver to you God's Word. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 23. A couple weeks ago, your pastor, uh, Matt Garino, introduced us to this series when he gave to us Psalm chapter 1. And um, again, I can't recapitulate everything that he said here, but his main question for us is, how can I be happy? And he made a, a central point that I thought was most helpful. He says that joy is mission critical for us. And, and as Matt and I were talking about the series, we, we discussed and he had the, the notion to say, how can we be happy in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of protests, in the midst of politics? And so Matt put forward this idea that I thought was helpful to go through this series. That what the Psalms give us is the Psalms give us ancient answers to modern questions. I think we can tend to think that we live in a, in a season, in an era, in a time that is unique, but it's not true. We, we, we live in a, in a season, in an era, in a time that is not uh, misunderstood to, to the ancients that came before us. And so we must look to the most ancient of literature, to God's holy word, to find answers to these kinds of questions. What are we supposed to do? How do we find joy? How are we to be happy? How are we to think in the midst of pandemics, protests, and politics. And last week, uh, I, I preached to you from Psalm chapter 16, and this is how I started the sermon, and I think it's a- applicable to us this morning. I quoted from C.S. Lewis, the, the British author and theologian, who said, pain insists upon being attended to. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And what a time to consider these words from C.S. Lewis. And I, again, think our text this morning, Psalm chapter 23, will give us answers to these questions. How are we to think about finding joy in the midst of pandemics, protests, and politics. Last week we said the text assumes that there's a need for a refuge, a need for a safe harbor, and the same is absolutely true this morning. I'll read the text for us here in a moment, but if you have your Bibles open like I suggested, if you just put your finger in verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the kind of stuff, of course, that we find on magnets and coffee cups, but it is so true. We are walking through a valley of the shadow of death. This is the psalm, Psalm 23 here, that the... British Baptist Charles Spurgeon called the pearl. He said Psalm 23 is the pearl of the Psalms. The psalm is in the category of Psalms that is considered to be one of confidence, and it invites us, 
The Lord this morning, my friends, is inviting us to bring all of our fears. It's inviting us not to suppress them, not to put them down, not to stuff them, but to bring all of our fears this morning and inviting us into a posture of confidence. What a time to do this. Let's read Psalm 23 together, and I'll unpack it for us under two headings. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word for us this morning. A brief prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you, God, that you have not left us alone, but you've given us a guide, and you speak to us still as your word is opened and it is proclaimed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Amen. Two uh, points for us this morning. Our first point will be verses 1 to 4, and that's called the Good Shepherd. And our second point will be verses 5 to 6, and that's called the Generous Host. Verses 1 to 4, the Good Shepherd. Verses 5 to 6, the Generous Host. So point one, the Good Shepherd. Uh, let me start with a, a story, an illustration. Uh, there's a nonfiction title by Alfred Lansing from 1959 called Endurance. And it tells this in, incredible story of a voyage of uh, Antarctic explorers. And this is the 19-teens. Their expedition was from 1914 to 1917. And their ship gets unexpectedly stuck in the ice. It's an island of ice of sorts. And uh, the, the, the ship becomes slowly and slowly crushed, and the ship slowly actually sinks as the ice becomes stronger and stronger and, 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 and takes over the ship. And so these men, there's 28 of these men, and they're castaways in the most savage of regions as you can consider in the world. They're drifting. They don't know, they don't know what to do. There's, they're, they're, they're without hope of rescue. They're in this very desperate situation. And at one point in the book, Lansing makes this quote. In all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. He says it's like a return to the ice age. No warmth, no life, no movement, utter silence. As I read it, I, I, I thought of that scene from Titanic, if, if you've seen it. There, there, there's people dying and, and drowning, but the way that James Cameron does the film, is it, it's, it's quiet out there, though. There's no life. It's, it's silent out there. They had no radio transmitter where they could notify any uh, would-be rescuers. They, they had no way to broadcast an SOS. It was 
15, there wasn't any helicopters, there weren't planes coming over top and so on and so forth. It was up to them to get themselves out. And so they made themselves over to Elephant Island, a dark and stormy voyage of 346 miles on lifeboats. And they get there, and it's the first time they've put feet on solid ground in 497 days. But there was nothing on Elephant Island. And so they decided to take the risk of a journey to Georgia Island, which was another 720 miles away. And they made it, and they were rescued. And this story, this book Endurance, is an amazing story of a long, long journey through months and years through the polar night. The South Pole darkness, a journey through so much darkness and so much unknown, unfamiliar territory, isolation, frozen at sea. But the story actually climaxes with these 27 men because they looked to their leader. Their leader that had the courage to lead them through all this, his name was Ernst Shackleton. And the, the crew described him as the greatest leader who ever came on God's earth, bar none. <laughs> I mean, you must be, right? To lead through a journey through 346 miles and then say, ah, this is going to do it on Elephant Island and then go 720 miles. You must be a leader of leaders in order to do that. So this is a long introduction because it's a story about a long journey. It's a story like our journey, because what it is to be a Christian, as many have called it from John Bunyan and, and others, is that the Christian life is the life of pilgrim. We're pilgrims. That's what Peter will call it, right? He says that we're strangers and exiles. Peter says that we're on a journey going somewhere. This home is not our home. This land is not our land. We shouldn't ultimately belong here because we're heaven-bound. We don't totally fit in. We're on this journey between island to island. And this journey of faith I think sometimes, especially in these last few days and weeks and months, feels especially long. But we have Psalm 23, don't we? Amidst a long journey, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So the first point I want to put to us this morning as we're looking at verses 1 to 4 is the most obvious one but it is one we need to hear. We have a good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, you may have heard this before. You know that this is speaking into an agrarian society and culture. We're speaking into a, a culture where uh, they're, they're used to farming and raising cattle and sheep and so on. And and the shepherds are one that are used to dealing with those that aren't the smartest tool in the shed. Right? 
Sheep aren't the smartest animals in the animal kingdom. They're not the brightest, they're not the bravest, they're weak. They're easily led astray. They are always the most vulnerable. And God in His kindness is saying to us, He's not demeaning us, He's not putting us down, He's just reminding us, this is kind of what you're like. You're vulnerable, you're weak. And the reason it's kind is because He's saying, and you need a shepherd. And I'm your shepherd. I'm the one who is going to lead you. We are very much in the same kind of place as the psalmist finds himself. This is the king. Don't remember. Don't forget. This is, this is King David. This is the strong leader. This is the one who is Israel's greatest king. And he himself has the humility to acknowledge himself as uh, one in need of a shepherd. He's a sheep. We are weak. My friends, you can't be led. You can't be helped. You can't be guided. You can't be aided unless you acknowledge your own humility and weakness, your vulnerability. Well, the second thing that we need to see as we're looking at this is that the shepherd knows us. (laughs) The first few verses here, There's all sorts of benefits, though, to being a sheep. There's all sorts of benefits to being a sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There are great benefits to acknowledging the reality that we are sheep, that we are weak, that we are vulnerable, that we need God. Because then we have all the benefits of the shepherd who knows us. Remember, Jesus says to us in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I know them by name. He knows everything about you. He knows all your weaknesses. He knows all your proclivities. He knows your fears. He knows your anxieties. He is the good shepherd who knows you. The Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus himself, in John's gospel, takes on the identity of the good shepherd. He knows you. He knows what your particular needs are. He knows what frightens you. You are his sheep. And you are absolutely, comprehensively, completely loved by your shepherd. Brothers and sisters, hear that this morning. In the midst of politics, pandemics, and protests, fears, anxieties, you have a shepherd who knows you and loves you. You will not want. You will not lack rest. You will not lack restoration. And you will ultimately lie down in green pastures. And again, another sub-point, he leads you. He's the one who leads you beside still waters. 
You're not going to lack guidance in this life. He guides you down the right paths in His shepherding care. He defends you. Verse 4, I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He defends you. He protects you from the things that threaten you, even in the most darkest of places. It says that His rod and His staff, that's, the, that, those are, that, that, that's imagery of a shepherd beating off wolves. You're weak sheep. You need someone to beat off your enemies. You're a weak sheep. You need someone to defend you, and you have it. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. Well, before we go to the next point, I just want to press one more thing into us. Verse 4. Even though... Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. These should be words of great comfort to us. Notice what it doesn't say. What it doesn't say is that when I get to trial, he will take me out of it every time. Now, this may be a hard word to hear, but it is actually words of great comfort. Because there can be the tendency to think that the way he will lead me out of the trial is to bring health, money, relational success. But it doesn't say that. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. He doesn't take us out of the trial every time. He doesn't take us out of the trial every time, but he promises his presence with us through the trial. Friends, if you're a, a, a young Christian, or even if you walked with the Lord for a long time, this is a very crucial point and a very crucial reality to to, to grasp and to believe. God doesn't always take us out of the trial, but he remains present with us through it. James will say it, James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It doesn't say in James 1, 2, if you meet trials of various kinds. It says when you meet trials of various kinds. Meeting trials, meeting suffering is inevitable. It's part of living on this side of the Garden of Eden. It's part of living on this side of the fall. You will meet troubles. If you're a, a young person listening, listening this morning and you haven't met a trial, it's just because you haven't lived long enough yet. You will go through trial. You will go through suffering. Jesus told us, John chapter 16, in this world you will have troubles. Peter will tell us in 1 Peter 4, 12, do not be surprised when fiery trial comes upon you. Grief, loss, heartache, they will come upon you. And, and some of us are in the midst of it right now. That's why we're preaching this kind of sermon series right now. But there is no trial 
There is no calamity. There is no pressure. There is no overwhelming sorrow. There is no small root of life outside the plan of God. Because when we endure the trial with the shepherd walking right alongside of us, we will find fullness of joy. My favorite hymn is How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for, to, to, for, for refuge to Jesus have fled? For I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. When I call you through deep waters, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to your deepest distress." The soul that in Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to forsake, I will never, never, never forsake. But in the midst of pandemics and protests and politics, it's just a reminder to us that there aren't any quick fixes. But we're not forsaken. You know, this is the way it's been put to me, is that the way out of a trial is through a trial. The way out of a trial is through a trial. Meaning, we can't just hope for it to be removed immediately because God is refining us He's walking with us. He's showing us to be the great shepherd as we walk through in the midst of a trial. Uh, last comment, and then I'll go on to my second point. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on this text, says this, The dark valley is a truly one of God's right paths. He leads me in right paths. The dark valley is truly one of his right paths, as are the green pastures. And his presence overcomes the worst thing that remains, the fear. You are with me. It's his presence that overcomes the worst thing, the fear. Again, many of you are going through deep trials and deep suffering. The Apostle will tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that his power is made perfect in weakness, that his, great, his grace is sufficient for us. I remember there was a season when my wife and I were, were struggling. As you may have heard in some of my introductions, we have a lot of kids, uh, but we've also experienced uh, deep pain through miscarriages. One was particularly late. And there's nothing you can do the feeling of utter helplessness. There's, there's, just, there's nothing you can do. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have experienced 
miscarriages, some of you experienced the death of a spouse, some of you experienced the death of a, of a parent. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Walking through the trial, going through the circumstance of, of grief, is what produced a kind of endurance that James is talking about. Sometimes we have to go through it to experience it. I, I often think about Joseph in the pit in Genesis chapter 37, crying out to God to, to be rescued, being abandoned by his brothers, being, being sold into slavery, years and years of pain and suffering. But you don't see the result until you get to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when he says, Now I know what man meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many. He couldn't say that in Genesis 37. He couldn't say that when he was in the pit. We could have read the verse to him. We could have read the Bible verse to him and said, Joseph, here's what's happening. But he had to experience decades of, of suffering and seeing the faithfulness of God. What if God is doing that in our generation even now? That's the first point. And second, let's consider the generous host. See, my friends, my brothers and sisters, verse 5 and 6, you have a seat at his table. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, you prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. It doesn't say you're removed from the presence of your enemies. It's saying that God is with you. He's preparing for you a table in the midst of your enemies. And that imagery that we had in the verse, first four verses of a shepherd who is kind and walks beside gets even all the more intimate in a, in a, in a, in a table, uh, in, in a meal intimate-like relationship, a meal for companions. You're not just a sheep. You're not just a sheep. You're not just one who he's willing to kind of whack on the backside and, and keep, keep, keep going. He's one who makes a meal for you. He prepares a meal. Don't you remember what Jesus does when he's resurrected at the end of John's gospel? The, the disciples are, are they're, they're dismayed, and, and Jesus, he makes them breakfast. <laughs> what? What a wonderful thing to do. This is the king of the world. This is the one who speaks the universe into existence. And what he does is he sits by a lake, he starts a fire, and he makes some breakfast. He makes them his friends. No longer do I call you my servants, but I call you my friends. As again, the commentator Derek Kidner points out, to eat and drink at someone's table could be the culminating token of a covenant. And so to be God's guest is way more than to be an acquaintance invited for a day, but is to, to live with him forever. I love those moments. My wife and I have the joy of having my family live in town, and we we rotate the three major meals and celebrations of the year 
of, of Easter and Thanksgiving and Christmas. My brother and his wife host Easter. My wife and I host Thanksgiving, and my in-laws host Christmas. And it is one of the most joyous meals of the year. It's a sense of belonging. It's a sense of intimacy. And that's what this text is saying. God himself, Jesus himself, is saying that I am the generous host who not, I'm not just your shepherd, I prepare a table for you. Verse 5, he anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. He's rolling out the red carpet for us. You're welcomed, you're honored at this table. He fills you. There's a freedom there. It's in the presence of your enemies. Even in the midst of all of life's suffering and circumstances and so on and so forth, this table is laid out for you. It is His goodness. It is His mercy that pursues us. They run after us wherever we may find ourselves. Whether we're on the mountaintop or we're in the deepest and darkest of valleys, it's His goodness. It's His love that is relentlessly chasing after us. Surely your goodness will follow me. Surely your goodness shall chase after me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The grace and the goodness and the mercy of God will forever chase us. His love is relentless. His love is unrelenting. His love pursues us even to the very bitter end. One British writer wrote in the 19th century that the love of God is like the hound of heaven who will chase and chase and chase and chase and pursue us. Surely your goodness and love will pursue me forever. So let me turn us to a close here. Last week, as we looked at Psalm 16, I showed us this in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. This is David saying, you're all I got. You are my chosen portion and you are my cup. Look at our text this morning. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and my head with oil. Anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It's the same word in the Hebrew. To say, you are my chosen portion and my cup, and then to say in Psalm 23 that my cup overflows is to say this, God continually gives himself to us again and again and again and again. More and more and more and more. Well, we must ask ourselves, how can that be the case? Because in Mark 14... 36, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. The cup of abundance, 
the cup of blessing, the cup of God's overwhelming presence and love and grace to us is only possible because Jesus took the cup of wrath. Jesus took the cup of staggering. Jesus took the cup of punishment. You and I don't deserve the presence of God. We don't deserve the presence of God through our suffering. We have failed Him time and time and time again. We are like the disciples or worse, sitting on the side of the beach. Peter denied Him three days before. I don't know this guy. And yet Jesus came to him. And Jesus comes to you. Out of sheer mercy and grace. And promises his protection, his presence, his bounty table of love and grace towards you. If you would just repent of your sin and trust him. And Christian, that's not just a message for those that don't know Jesus yet. That's a message for us. The message for us is to continually renew ourselves in the mercy and grace of God found in Jesus Christ by repenting of our sin and turning to him in faith and trust and finding all of our hope, all of our significance, all of our security, satisfaction, and control in him. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let us pray. So Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We ask God that you would press it into us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, who loved us and died for us. In Jesus' name, amen.